Hello, and welcome to this session on estimation and forecasting with Amanda Ngo. I'm Habiba, and I'll be the MC for this session. We'll be starting with a 15-minute talk by Amanda, then we'll move on to a live Q&A session where she'll respond to some of your questions. Now I'd like to introduce you to the speaker for this session. Amanda works on forecasting tools at Oort. She graduated from the Huntsman Programme at UPenn, where she worked with Dr. Angela Duckworth on self-control research. She previously interned in growth marketing, software engineering, and journalism. Here's Amanda. Hi, everyone. My name's Amanda. Uh, I'm excited to chat to you today about estimation and forecasting and how to get started with forecasting. Uh, I hope that at the end of today, you are excited about the value that forecasting can add to your life, and you also feel confident that you have a roadmap to get started. So this is a photo of me in college. Uh, I now work at the research nonprofit Ort, doing business operations and product work. Ort's overall mission is to delegate complex reasoning to machines. So there are lots of questions that we care about. For example, when will humanity face existential catastrophe? Where they're complex questions. It's hard to reason about them. It's hard to know if you have a good answer. But we still care a lot about getting a good answer to these questions. So Ort is working on how do we make machine learning as useful as possible for these kinds of questions. By default, machine learning is not as useful where the question is not clearly defined. Uh, there's not a lot of training data. There isn't a clear reward signal, or it's hard to tell when, there's, when you've generated a good answer. And it's not clear that as machine learning scales, it's going to get better at this kind of complex reasoning in a way that we can trust. So one approach to address this, which Ott is doing, is breaking down the reasoning process into smaller components that you can automate and evaluate the performance on. And this is a more incremental approach as well, where we're building a system that can help humans reason better. And as machine learning improves, we can plug that in. So Elicit is step one on this journey. Uh, currently what Elicit lets you do is you can enter in beliefs that you have about any forecasting question and Elicit will automatically create a probability distribution that's consistent and captures those beliefs as well as possible. And in the future, uh, Elicit will automate more and more of the reasoning process. So for example, uh, it might suggest factors that are useful for you to consider based on language model suggestions. So this is why we're excited about forecasting, but why should you care about applying forecasting to your own life? So there are several benefits that we found from doing a lot of forecasting ourselves. The first is that it is a forcing function for building mental models about the world. So trying to put numbers to a question really forces you to think through what are the causal factors that would make this event happen? What would have to be true for this event to happen? What information in the world would update me one way or the other? Uh, for example, we facilitated a set of predictions on AGI timelines on less wrong. And what we found from going through that process was that it really crystallized the models that people were using about when, how we would get AGI. So thinking about the probability that we would get AGI from language models and the probability that we'd need a paradigm shift. Second, it can help you calibrate your beliefs. So what forecasting is really doing is saying, I have a belief, let's test it against the world and see if it's accurate. We do a lot of project timeline estimation at Ort, and what we found is uh, what people often find when they do project timeline estimation, which is that we're consistently overconfident. 
And tracking these predictions uh, allows us to have that knowledge so that we can adjust downwards. And third, it can help you make more informed decisions. So this is both on the level of, if you have better predictions for AGI timelines, this can help you make career decisions about, should you go into AI safety? And on the level of project timelines, you can plan initiatives around that if you have better estimations of when you might launch a feature. Cool, so now let's jump into a process that you can use to actually make forecasts. It's worth noting here that forecasting is a pretty nascent field. And uh, you know, there's a lot of debate and discussion about what the different, the best practices are and which paradigms to use. And every different forecaster has a slightly different process that they use to forecast. So I'm going to point out a few tools that are helpful, uh, but it's worth keeping in mind that this isn't comprehensive. So the first stage is that you want to actually pick the question that you're going to forecast. It's worth spending a fair amount of time on this because you want to make sure that the question actually captures what you care about and is measurable. So there has to be some metric that you can tell whether that uh, question was true or false. So you might start with a vague question like, should I do a master's degree? But you can't forecast this yet because there's no outcome that you're actually forecasting. So you want to narrow it down into a question like, how useful will it be for my career? Now you have an outcome, how useful will it be? But you still don't have a metric that can tell you uh, whether it was true or not or how useful it actually was. So then you want to get to the third level, which is measurable questions. So there are often a lot of metrics that we can use to generate measurable questions for any outcome or vague question. In this case, a couple of examples are how many LinkedIn connections will I have for my master's degree? How many of my top 10 companies will give me a job offer if I do a master's degree? You sort of want to forecast on a cluster of these, but we're going to zoom in on the how many of my top 10 companies will give me a job offer question. Okay, so now you actually are making the forecast. The first key tool is to start with the outside view. So the outside view says that the event you're forecasting is going to look like similar events in the past. Basically, what you want to do is find what we call a reference class. So a reference class is a set of events that behave similarly that you can use to extrapolate in making the forecast that you're now making. So we're often overconfident about how the event that we're forecasting is going to be different. This is sort of a classic planning fallacy thing. When you're planning how long this project's going to take, you're overconfident. And actually, it's better for you to just look at, well, how long did similar projects take me in the past? So it's a bit of a skill to figure out which reference class you want to use. There are often multiple, and you have to choose which one is most useful for the question you're forecasting. In this case, some reference classes might be people with master's degrees who applied to similar companies and how many job offers they got. Or how many job offers you got out of undergrad might be a reference class for how many you're going to get uh, out of your master's degree. So once you have your outside view, you can then adjust it based on what we call an inside view. And this is more about building an actual model of the event uh, that you can use to be more specific than just your extrapolation of the outside view. There are lots of different ways and like angles to approach this from. Uh, I'm gonna outline a few, but there are a lot more than this. And you actually want to often use multiple of these angles and see if they uh, align and get you the same answer. So one is that you can think about factors that would lead to the outcome. So when forecasting job offers, uh, your GPA is going to influence that. 
uh, the state of the economy is going to influence how many jobs are available. How good your research papers are might influence your chances of getting a job. And you can go even steps further and go up the causal chain to forecast what factors would lead into you having good research. A second way to think about it is to generate sub-questions. So you could break this down into well, what's the probability that I get a job offer from each company and then combine those to get your overall forecast. Or you could think about, will I get an internship offer from one of my top 10 companies? And what's the probability that this will convert through to a full-time offer? And then you can also break it down into scenarios. So this is helpful for making sure that you've comprehensively covered all the things that might happen, even at the extreme edges. So you might think, well, there's a possibility that I don't graduate and maybe then I'll get zero jobs. Uh, and maybe that's 1% likely. And there's a possibility that you pivot your degree entirely. And maybe this leads you to get a lot more job offers. Maybe that's 10% likely. And there are a lot more as well. Okay, so now you have your forecast. You want to sense check it to make sure, do I really believe this? So the first thing is that you can uh, examine the implications of your belief. So you might want to ask yourself, would I bet on this? Uh, we find that when we ask if we want to bet on it, we often find that we're overconfident and we're not willing to actually make a bet on the forecast that we've made. Second, you can uh, sense check the summary statistics from the forecast. So you can see what the median and the mode are, the 25th and 75th percentile, and see if those seem reasonable. And you can also look at related questions. So if you forecasted previously your probability of getting an internship, then maybe this is going to have some relationship to your probability that, probability that you get a job, and you want to check if those align and seem reasonably, reasonable in the way that they um, relate. And then you can compare your forecasts. So we find it really useful to send out forecasts to each other and uh, basically compare them and see where we disagree the most and crucially find what factors and assumptions make us disagree the most. And then once you've made your forecast, you want to be revisiting it. You, it's key to update frequently. So as new information comes in, your forecast is going to change and update. So you might come back and uh, change your forecast if the economy improves or if you get an internship offer. And you also want to be tracking your forecasts so you can uh, calibrate and learn over time. You actually can't tell how accurate you were on one forecast uh, alone, because say, for example, you forecasted 80% chance that you get a job and then you don't get the job. You can't tell if it's because you made a bad forecast or because you were in the 20% world. So, um, but if you track in lots of forecasts, what you really want to see is that 80% uh, of the questions, when you say you're 80% confident on a question, those questions happen 80% of the time. And then you can also learn whether you're overconfident or underconfident in certain domains. So what are some next steps you can take? The biggest thing is just to start forecasting. So the EA Student Summer actually has a forecasting tournament. Uh, you should have received a link for that. And it's on Elicit as well, so you can practice that. And it's a really good way to get started. There are several platforms that uh, have public questions, and you can forecast on those questions and start getting a track record for your forecasting. So Metaculous, Good Judgment Open, and CCF Fortel. And then there are also several prediction markets like Predictit. And then there are a couple of tools that you can use to be making your forecasts. So Elicit lets you uh, make forecasts for continuous questions, we have binary questions uh, coming up, 
And you can also make forecasts that you can submit to Metaculus. And then Guestimate uh, is a tool built by Aussie Goen, and there's a link to a video that explains how to use Guestimate uh, somewhere on this talk page. And um, that's for you know, building causal models of forecasts. So just to recap, uh, today we talked about a process for forecasting. It started with defining a question, making sure the question is important and measurable, making a forecast, starting with the outside view, adding the inside view and breaking it down to make it easier, sense checking by examining the implications of your beliefs and comparing to other people, and then revisiting to update your forecasts and track and learn from how they resolve. So thank you so much for listening. I'm excited to hear your questions. And you can also email any questions through to amanda at ought.org. Thank you for that talk, Amanda. And I can see we've already had some questions in, but feel free to keep putting those questions in and we'll see uh, how many we can get through in the next 10 minutes of the session. Um, we've definitely had some questions around both the successes and limitations of uh, forecasting. So just to jump straight in, uh, to start with the successes, do you have any examples, Amanda, of some of the real world successes of forecasting? Yeah, totally. So I think um, first, like the forecasting field is pretty nascent and like there is not a lot of research and it's still sort of growing as a field. Mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest one to look at, if people haven't read Super Forecasting, I really recommend that. And basically um, showed that like collecting teams of expert forecasters, um, they were able to outperform, you know, like domain experts. And so and people were able to improve quickly over time with training. Um, and there's lots of examples in that book that I recommend uh, checking out. There's also, um, so I mentioned the platform Metaculus uh, mm -hmm. and Metaculus does a lot of, uh, you know, crowd aggregation uh, forecasts. And they recently did um, a, a like test where they basically got Metaculus people to uh, forecast against uh, COVID experts and found that, you know, Metaculus outperformed the COVID experts. Mm. Um, and there's other EA organizations like uh, one called Epifor, uh, who was doing COVID forecasting that you can look up as well. I think the difficult thing here is it's like, how do you know? Um, it's like, you have to have a benchmark. So basically these are some examples of where training in forecasting, it gets you better than uh, the other experts out there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I can also, sorry, speak to someone. No, 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 carry on. I think you were probably about to say the thing that I was about to ask. Um, yeah. I was wondering if you had any examples in your, in sort of within ORT or in your kind of your own experience about where you felt that forecasting has helped. Yeah, definitely. So um, we do a lot of forecasting around like uh, project timelines, uh, number of users. We do it uh, frequently for like evaluating features. So, you know, if we build this feature, how many users will we get? Mm -hmm. um, and we find that useful for like the reasoning process itself uh, and also like calibrating on, um, I often like change the way that I'm planning, uh, you know, how we're gonna do marketing initiatives based on uh, specifically like how much uncertainty people express in um, the forecast that they send. Super, thanks for that. And then I guess to switch into the sort of limitations, do you have a general sense of what are the some of the main limitations of forecasting? Yeah, definitely. So the first is that um, forecasting is best in short-term situations where you have really quick feedback loops. So uh, there's not a lot of research into you know, how well do we forecast events really far into the future? Mm. It's like really hard to do. Um, and like in general, we're not like particularly calibrated like a hundred years into the future. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, a lot of what what is trying to work on is like breaking those down into things that we can be more calibrated on and can evaluate. Um, but that's like one big limitation. Uh, another one is um, around like 
expressing too much precision when we're not actually sure uh, mm. in terms of like, you want to like, uh, there are a lot of things that we have a lot of uncertainty on and sometimes forecasting, if you're trying to be really precise, can lead you down a, a, a pathway of like um, being too confident in those numbers. And then uh, we can get into this in some of the later questions, but uh, mm -hmm. there's also obviously um, limitations around, you know, can you predict events that are like black swan events? Uh, like how do you how do you predict events that are like really out of distribution? Uh, and I think uh, this is obviously a limitation of trying to um, forecast whether an event is going to occur or like what kind of scenarios you might see. Um, but uh, I think there's still a lot of value in, in sort of model building and forecasting. Yes, so to pick up on that last point, um, uh, people have, uh, are curious about your take on Nassim Taleb's critique of forecasting. So I was wondering if you could kind of summarize your understanding of that, perhaps maybe define what those sort of black swan events are, and then your take on sort of, uh, you know, what you make of that kind of critique of forecasting. Yeah, so I will say I'm not an expert on Taleb's work, um, but basically my interpretation of um, that question and the critique is, uh, it's, you know, it's really hard to predict events that are like extremely far out of distribution. So if you you know, often with forecasting, we're talking about looking at past data and trying to uh, predict new events based on what's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you have like really uh, unpredictable events, like what do you what do you do with those? How do you you know, how do you predict them um, based on the, the, the past data? So uh, I think my main uh, the way, main way I would respond to this is basically that, you know, this is obviously a limitation. But uh, I think that there's like two ways to think about forecasting. There's like, you're trying to get a really precise number that you can like, um, you know, be certain is going to be, or like increase your confidence that like this event is gonna happen. But also there is, it's like a tool for like helping you reason through what might cause these events to happen. So if you think about forecasting more as, um, yeah, as I said before, like model building, like what are the different scenarios that could occur? Um, what are the different like, uh, causal things that would would make those scenarios occur. Like, what assumptions do we have? How do we figure out, you know, where we disagree with other people and like have productive discussions about that? Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's like a really important area of forecasting that is like underrated if you're just thinking about like, well, we can't predict black swan events, so therefore we should give up. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you for the answer. That was very comprehensive. <laughs> um, and then thinking again, I guess this uh, this point about the kind of uses for for forecasting. Um, uh, one of the questions is how, if at all, do you think prediction markets should be used in modern forecasting? Yeah, great question. So um, prediction markets are a little difficult because of uh, the way they're regulated. Um, so mm -hmm. I think some of the the main ones are like not based in the US; they're based elsewhere. Uh, because like U.S. people can't, you know, engage in these prediction markets. I think uh, the, the main way I think about it is like it's a useful like crowd aggregation tool. So you're mm -hmm. sort of getting the, the benefit of like aggregating uh, many different predictions. Um, but there are limitations, uh, particularly in the sense that, um, you know, there's often like fees built in to uh, to the for prediction platforms themselves. So you can't take the probabilities at face value because they're adjusting for those fees. And you also have to be really careful about like how many people are actually participating in this and where in the world are they? So I think it's useful to like, as one of your inputs uh, in whatever model you're building or however you're considering things, but um, I, I wouldn't sort of take them at face value. Mm -hmm. 
And then we've had a couple of questions from people talking about using Elicit and trying to build their own um, their own kind of forecasts. So uh, one question is, when someone was trying to use the Elicit app, they found it hard to have an intuitive feel for probability distributions. So just wondering if you have any advice on how they should try and approach constructing a distribution from their beliefs. And also someone wondering if specifically on the point when they sense check the probabilities, is that just seem? Does that seem like it's actually going to be quite susceptible to bias because you've um, you've sort of already picked things quite robustly, and then you're sort of undoing some of that careful thinking when you sense check? Yeah, great question. So on the first one, I think uh, the intuitive feel is something that you build up over time, and this is really where the calibration and making lots of predictions really helps. So like you start out and you like might not have a like great sense of like the difference between thirty percent and fifty percent. But the more you the more you forecast and the more you get feedback back, you you start to build like that calibration. Um, I find it useful to basically like like examine things from many different ang different angles. So one check that I do is like, okay, if I think it's thirty percent likely, that means like in three out of ten worlds it's going to occur. And then I like think about those three worlds, or I, like sometimes you can just like roll a dice or like uh, mm -hmm. do it get a random number and see how many times the random numbers. Uh, pop up and see like whether that seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah, I think the biggest thing here is just uh, do a lot of it and get quick feedback such that you can mm -hmm. calibrate over time. Yes, and I think I'd probably better stop you there. Sorry, I know I Sorry. gave you a two-part question, but we yeah. have now run out of time. But if you had any other further thoughts, perhaps maybe you can put them in the chat afterwards. Um, but thank you so much, yeah, Amanda. Definitely.